Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me on the I Love Data Centers podcast today. Thank you for inviting me, Sean. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Well, from the, uh, the first conversation that we had on a call prior to, I think it was one of the IMN events last year, it became clear to me that you were definitely someone that I would be interested in, in interviewing, not only due to your uh, the history that you have in, in the data center industry, but your, your ability to tell uh, fun stories uh, and relevant stories just kind of makes this a, a, a perfect match and a podcast that I know our listeners will enjoy here. So um, without well, I'm further... I'm glad ado, I fooled you. <laughs> I'm glad I fooled you. So without further ado, man, I'd, I'd love to dig in and just ask you real quick off the bat, where, where are you located right now? I am a lifelong New Yorker. Uh, my office is in Manhattan, has always been, uh, and I am a lifelong resident of the Bronx, New York, and a Yankee fan, and I'm actually sitting in my home office right now working at home. Right on. So you're born and raised in, in Manhattan, huh? In, in the Bronx? In the Bronx, yes, all my life. Uh, that's an, a wonderful thing. I got to tell you, I was I was almost in tears on behalf of all Cleveland Indian fans after the <laughs> after what the Yankees <laughs> did to them in the first round of the playoffs. Unfortunately, they weren't able to keep the uh, momentum going. Yeah, but it's it's fun, man. I mean, I, I'm a Cubs fan, so I just enjoy the spectacle of it all, and the fact that the the Cubs won the World Series last year makes me a happy man for the rest of my life. But to watch someone like the Indians in the season that they had end up losing in the first round was just painful. <laughs> the Yankees are delighted to share the wealth once in a lifetime with another team. We did it with the Mets, did it with the Cubs, you know, did it with Houston now. Once right. is enough. So being born and raised in New York, have you were you always around just the the large infrastructure and scale of, of technology that uh, that we were in today. I mean, I would think that growing up in a metropolitan city, the the advancements have where it hits New York kind of before it hits the vast majority of, of other regions around the world. You know, was technology a new thing for you as you got older or were you always around it? Sort of a combination of both. I was a bit exposed to it and I grew up originally aiming at government service as a career, and then focusing on 
real estate law and after law school practiced law right away after I spent a year with a federal judge and did commercial real estate law, big acquisition, sales, development, financing of office buildings, apartment houses, shopping centers. Uh, as I was growing up, I watched my brother in the computer space. He was one of those kids when we were in high school and in college who would get up at noon and stay up until three o'clock in the morning writing code in his bedroom uh, and ended up being one of the first guys in the country to get a PhD in computer sciences, but it was all Greek to me. I really started to actively get involved in the space by accident when I was senior associate at uh, one of the big New York law firms, Kay Scholler, back in the late 80s. I did a lot of real estate work for people like Olympia New York and Bankers Trust Company and uh, Trizec Han Shopping Center and Office Building Company. And I got put on the team to do an acquisition of a radio station in 1986, did a precedent-setting deal in the Meadowlands in New Jersey involving that radio station. All the AM radio stations serving New York City are located in the Meadowlands because there's a unique propagation issue there that the salt marshes, which are connected to the Hudson River and go up and down the tidal marshes, have uh, the ability to put what's called a radio line, a spider's web of cables under the salt marsh that effectively double the height of the tower for transmission purposes. And when I did that radio station deal, New Jersey decided that the portion of the uh, antenna, the radio lines that were in the salt marshes were not on land owned by any of the radio stations. Same thing applied to all the AM radio stations in the Meadowlands, but that land underwater is owned by the state of New Jersey under what's riparian rights. And I learned about the radio station industry and how radio antenna towers work and negotiated a precedent setting lease, the first ever long-term saleable, financeable lease with the state of New Jersey, allowing an AM radio tower to continue using the land that the state actually owned. And that precedent I developed is still being used today. Then a couple of years later, I uh, switched law firms and at my new law firm, two things happened. First, I got my first big client of my own, which was American Express, and I was a leasing council nationwide doing um, office leases, retail leases, other things for American Express. And at that time, they rolled out a plan, and nobody knew about the technology or how to deal with it to do two things. They developed their first two data centers in Phoenix, and I did the real estate work on that. And they rolled out a plan to link all their regional offices and retail travelers, check credit card, travel agency offices, and every other office around the country back to the data center in real time by putting a satellite antenna dish on the roof of the building. First major um, general business company to do that. And I went out and wrote the clauses and amended a thousand leases within three years to give them roof rights across the United States. Wow. And all of a sudden, now between those deals, I started learning about technology and telecom and how it relates to real estate. 
So were you using your brother at that time as, you know, one of your primary confidants, you know, geeks to, to float the ideas past and, and sort of learn about the technology or who, who were you tapping at that time? He was a, he was a computer guy. So he understood the computer portion of it and what a data center does and certainly helped me giving me explanations. I went out and I took a few um, intro telecom engineering courses, not intended for lawyers, just general courses learning about types of wiring and how computers operate and how satellite dishes work and radio towers. And um, that was a little before the cellular stage. But in the mid-1990s, when cell phones started rolling out and in the late 90s with building wiring, becoming common for high-speed data service, I again took a bunch of telecom courses, very intro-level ones. Where'd you take understand. them? I mean, this is pre-University of Phoenix days, so you physically had to sit in a classroom, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, I don't recall. I know I have a couple of loose-leaf manuals sort of as souvenirs sitting on bookshelves in uh, my library at the office. But I dug up some stuff and, and went to a bunch of half-day and full-day classes I gotcha. um, run by the telecom industry and industry associations and engineering firms. Yeah, so you, you must have been one of the few on the planet at the time who, who started to understand what was going on in the sector. Was in, At what point did you uh, start to pull the community together? Because I know you're... Catch me if I'm wrong, but you were the founder of the IMN data center event that Correct. goes on. What, yep. what was what was the history and background uh, precipice? So what I was what I was doing in the telecom, what I call telecom real estate space, diversified. It started out with the radio station thing. It got into the data center and the satellite dish. Then, in the mid to late '90s, shifted into cellular as cellular rolled out. I was representing both property owners and um, uh, carriers, and then we got into the building wiring phase. So in the mid to late 90s, I started doing a lot of lecturing, and there was a period of time where I was giving a lecture almost every week, and probably once every two weeks, they were outside New York. So I was on a plane every other week going somewhere doing a lot of lecturing for real estate industry organizations. I spoke at BOMA in 10 different cities and uh, International Council of Shopping Centers, all sorts of other organizations all around the country, telling them about cellular and how it impacts them, about wiring up their properties, about satellite antenna dishes and renting space on the rooftops. The first article that I wrote on telecom, which was in the middle or late 90s, was called Found Money. And that's what I was pressing to the real estate industry. Most of these deals are spaces on the roof or an equipment closet or wiring in the risers that you don't view as rentable space. And they're typically triple net free rent with no expenses incurred to the property owner, and it really is found money directly to the bottom line. Even if the numbers aren't huge, 
because there's no associated expenses, it's pure profit. The only expense generally is my legal fee. And in the late 90s, I started getting lots of property owners as a result of that that I represented in these deals and some carriers and telecom companies. Then I got involved in what was known as the BLEC craze in the late 90s, building-centric telecom providers who were offering the wire office buildings at the beginning with copper T1s that they would bring a T1 into the building, run a riser up the building, and allow smaller tenants to share access over the T1 and buy data and phone service at prices undercutting uh, Ma Bell in those days or the uh, breakup of the Bells, the regional um, uh, bar box that came out of the Bell companies. Um, and then I think it was 1998, uh, I did a real estate conference with IMN and met with Steve Glenner from IMN to talk about being involved in some other conferences. He said, what else do you think we could do? And I threw out the idea, then it wasn't called data centers, they were called carrier hotels and switch facilities. And we created that conference. I helped bring in a lot of the speakers and a lot of the audience. And uh, I think we had 150 or 200 people the first time we ran it and then kept going up. And it peaked at about, it was six or 800, um, maybe in 2000 or so, or 2001. And then uh, with the dot-com crash, that conference went on hiatus for a few years, and then IMN brought it back about seven or eight years ago, rebranded as uh, Data Center Forum. So I have chaired that conference twice a year, every time uh, since it was created. And it's been a lot of fun. And I also speak at a lot of other conferences, BizNow and CapRate. Uh, occasionally data center dynamics or AFCOM, or host of others. I love speaking. I get a kick out of it and it keeps my name out there. So related to the different conferences that you have been going to for the last few decades at this point, I've been watching the topics that are going on inside the, the different conferences. And uh, it's almost... I don't want to say it's the exact same topics that are being talked about at, at every conference, but I'm curious from your perspective, how have you seen kind of the major talking points and trends evolve over the last 15, 20 years in the space? Well, I think first you need to break up the conferences themselves. And um, in my view, they're all great conferences, but they focus on different audiences. So Data Center Dynamics, AFCOM, a number of the other conferences are focused more on the engineering and the technical people. So for me, it's not the right audience. I speak to those conferences occasionally, but those people are generally not interested in the legal issues in data center or other aspects of telecom real estate. I've spoken at BTIA, you know, a whole bunch of the cellular conferences, DAS conferences, all sorts of things. But many of them are more engineering focused. You have to separate those out, at least from my perspective of the ones that interest me. And I 
focused most heavily the last few years on on three conferences, IMN, BizNow, and CapRate, because they are more C-suite oriented in terms of the audience and more real estate and business in the focus and less engineering. They do, as you indicate, have a lot of overlapping topics among the conferences and a lot of overlapping, but not the same speakers at the conferences. The thing is, I find even if I walk in with a stock speech and at these conferences, I don't generally give a presentation or a speech and they're mostly panel discussions, which I love. But even if the ones where occasionally I give a speech, every time I give the speech, it's different because I get off on a different tangent. I tell different stories. I don't have a speech I'm reading. I work off an outline. And I think the same is very true with the panels. You have different people on the panels. You have a different moderator asking questions differently. You get a question from the audience. So even if the brochure looks like it's the same topic, where you go to uh, BizNow in New York and BizNow in Dallas and BizNow in San Francisco, and even if you have the exact same panel outline and some of the same speakers, the discussion is very different at each one. And I find pretty much every time I go to one of these, I pick up some new tidbits and some interesting facts on most of the panels. So it's worthwhile, even if it's sounds on paper like they're very similar. So from a content perspective and and a legal perspective, how have you seen the marketplace evolving over the last 15-20 years? So when I started out particularly in the data center space back in the well American Express deal was 1989 or 90 but Putting those couple of early deals aside, sort of in the last 15 to 20 years, um, the space has evolved dramatically. Back in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was craze out there, a ton of real estate owners who owned the proverbial brick shit house, an old warehouse um, with high ceilings and heavy floor loads would call that a data center and get their broker to market it as a data center and hang a sign on the building, data center space available. And there were so many of those, as well as the other side, so many unsophisticated operators who said, wow, this sounds like a great business and I can rent space out at, at a much higher multiple than if I were renting it out for warehouse or office use, I should buy properties and call them data centers and make a fortune. Um, I represented a subsidiary started by one of the largest investment banking firms in the US, a name everybody listening to this would know. They decided to go into the data center business um, in the late 90s and they bought six properties around the United States and said, we're a big investment bank. We have smarter people than anybody else and more money than most other people. So we can fix any problems and make these work as data centers and tenants will have confidence that we can do it. Every one of those locations failed. One of them 
had a 12-foot sewer running diagonally under the property with an inspection and access hatch in the basement of the building. Another one had a main railroad line 50 feet behind the building. Another one didn't have fiber near the building. It was on the other side of a highway. And they said, oh, a million dollars a mile to build fiber. It'll cost us a million dollars to bring it from the other side of the highway. No problem. They didn't realize they wouldn't be allowed to tunnel under the highway and had to go around. And it would have been $10, $12 million and years of approvals to be able to stretch miles of fiber to get around to the right side of the highway. Yeah, I, um, I had a I had a similar experience when I was in the just started in the data center industry. It was about 2000, 2005, 2006. And in the Bay Area, which is where I was, um, and right off the 101 in Santa Clara area, it was almost every building or every lot that was for sale would say, you know, this could be a data center. They were trying to bill it and sell it as a data center without any understanding of where the fiber was in and around the area where the electrical grid sat relative to the facility and what capacity was available. Uh, they were just trying to market it as a data center because clearly from a real estate perspective, you know, they were thinking they could, they could pick up more dollars per square foot uh, as such. Right. So exactly right. You, you had a ton of people giving the industry a bad name by their lack of sophistication back in the early days. And their, was a survival of the fittest. A lot of companies went out of business. There aren't too many data center companies around today that existed in late 90s, early 2000s. Um, a lot of them merged, and a lot of the unsophisticated ones fell by the wayside. But it gave the industry a bad name. And when you combine that with the economic downturn, the dot-com bust in, in uh around 2000, um, the industry slowed down for a number of years and it took until sort of 2005, six, seven to start moving again. Really been moving at a good pace ever since then with a lot more sophisticated parties, but there are still a lot of unsophisticated parties out there, I find. Every once in a while, I do a deal where I'm representing about two thirds of what I do is representing landlords, owners, operators, and about one third is on the tenant customer users side. And I find regularly, I did a deal um, last year where I had issues on both sides. I had a good tech guy at the tenant I was representing, but his CEO wanted to select the location of where the data center was gonna go. And it wasn't a huge data center, it was maybe uh, 500 kW or so. He wanted to pick where it went because he wanted to use it as an excuse to take an office at the data center and have it near his home so he didn't have to schlep into Manhattan on Fridays and the day before a holiday weekend. But he could say, I'm working and I'm in an office because he'd have a, an office where the data center was. So he selected a location in suburban New York and a data center operator that was a second class or third class facility because he wanted the convenience. Yeah, the convenience the piece is pretty interesting. Right. Yeah, the, um, uh... I still see what what is referred to as data center huggers who uh, mm -hmm. want to keep the data center close and want it 
in Manhattan. Their office is in Manhattan, and that's why you still have some downtown facilities, more into connection than actual data center, but there are some data centers in Manhattan and some that are still inside corporate headquarters in a closet that they added supplemental air and put raised floor in. And I know one company where they had their data center in their headquarters and they were in a major office building and the office building once a year would have a power shutdown, organized, planned in advance to some sort of a repair to the building's electrical system. And the whole building's out and they had battery backup that would go 15 minutes or 30 minutes, but their data center went down and that company stopped for that overnight or weekend when the building was doing electrical repair. Yeah, and most people don't fully understand that there's other options available to them or what the total costs are involved. And that's, you know, it's a whole other story that we can get into because that's the game that we play. But relevant to that, I was down in uh, Louisiana, let's just say, and I was doing some training with some sales reps. And one of them was complaining uh, about the server huggers that existed in his market and said that he was just in a meeting with the CEO of a company who wasn't considering or willing to look into co-location, co-locating the infrastructure out of their office into a data center, specifically because he enjoyed feeling the heat from the server room when he walked past it during the day. And I said, dude, this is the easiest sale for you possible. All you need to do is buy the guy a space heater, put it on his desk, and then show him the raw cost savings that he would have if he pulled it out of his office and <laughs> problem solved. Um, and it was, it's just mind boggling for me both to hear from clients who haven't considered it, aren't looking at it, or are afraid to migrate. Uh, and also a lot of the the folks who are on the sales side who simply don't know how to correctly and accurately position the benefits of working with a provider who who knows what they're doing. Another option I did in a similar situation to that was I said, fine, keep the data center you have in your headquarters, but make that your backup. Set up an alternate facility in a real data center with high level of redundancy that becomes your primary and keep the one in your office live as a backup. So what what has prevented you from going out and working for one of the major REITs or one of the major um, brokerage firms directly? I've considered that, had some opportunities over the years. Um, I like the diversity of my practice that I have multiple different clients. If I go in-house at a data center company, I have one client. And I find one of the things I have to offer our group at my firm that I lead has to offer is most law firm Lawyers in the data center base have a singular focus. They have one client that drove them into the space and they're representing digital realty or, or DuPont Fabros before its acquisition or Rackspace or another company. And they only know that company's way of doing business and that side of the table. One of the unique things about my practice is I describe it as being both vertically and horizontally integrated. So um, vertically integrated in that we do 
all sides up and down the stack of telecom transactions. So we represent data center owners, operators, data center tenant customers, private equity occasionally, lenders occasionally, um, uh, venture investors occasionally. Then we also do cellular and DAS and fiber and building wiring and all sorts of stuff. And it's a different practice than being in-house where you're only looking at it from one company's perspective. And I find that breadth of being both on both sides of the deal representing at different times, tenants or landlords, as well as um, lenders or investors and all the different types of related industries, fiber and cellular, it's a unique kind of practice. Plus, I still spend half my time doing general commercial real estate. I love the diversity. I've up until now never had the kind of opportunity that I thought was right to go in-house on narrower perspective. As far as going to a brokerage firm, not really something I ever thought about. My pure skills are as a lawyer, although I spend a lot of my time giving business advice. Um, uh, no, no, I never really thought about being a broker. So with the experience that you have, and the relationships you have, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure, Jeffrey, that you make very good money doing what you do. <laughs> but, but um, you know, I would, I would venture to say that if you ran, um, you just looked at the, the money that the brokers have made who were involved in the transactions that you were a part of, you'd be pretty shocked at how much money those guys have made relative to the I'm fees. I'm sure it's that, true. That, you were charging. And, and the same is true with other law firms. There are larger law firms. You know, Mintz Levin is 525 lawyers in eight offices, East Coast and West Coast and London. Um, there are lots of much bigger law firms where I could earn more money, but I like the people I work with. I like the flexibility the firm gives me to run my practice and do what I want to do. And the devil I know is a hell of a lot better than the devil I don't know. So uh, unless someone at this stage of my career was going to give me huge guarantees or minimums in compensation, um, would be hard to justify the risk-reward analysis of giving up the stability and the good people I work with and taking the risk of going somewhere else. And will I succeed? And that risk is even greater. If I'm changing basic career path out of the practice of law and giving up my client base and starting from scratch as a real estate broker. I hear you. So let me pick your brain on a couple of things that I'm sure the, the listeners here would appreciate. Um, what, what have you seen to be the most common uh, misunderstandings or uh, mistakes when it comes to the transactions that you've been a part of, specifically related to to data center? The biggest problem I have is dealing with people who don't know what they're doing. And I spend a tremendous amount of my time educating people who don't know what. So um, data center transactions, if you go back 10 or 15 years, used to emanate from the real estate or facilities department at a company. Um, and those people just knew about space and understood power a little, but had no idea what went on in the data center. And today, that 
pendulum has shifted and probably 60% of deals come out of a either data center or telecom or IT type group at the company. 40% of the time, real estate is involved and you have 10% overlap with both real estate and telecom or technology people are involved. And in the 10% overlap, 90% of those cases, they're fighting to control their territory between them. And the problem is very few of those situations on the tenant's side whether I'm representing the landlord opposite them or the owner operator of the facility or representing that tenant. Very few of them, do they have really sophisticated data center people who understand leases. So they may have good data center operational people, but they're not the business negotiators on the deal usually. They, the negotiators are usually IT type people or finance department people or real estate or facilities people. And then they go get an outside lawyer or an in-house lawyer. And a majority of the time, the lawyer involved is either a real estate lawyer who says, I've done three data center leases or one data center lease, sure I can handle it. Or an IT lawyer who does software contracts or a telecom lawyer who does uh, buying data capacity or uh, uh, phone or video services or software consulting agreements. And a substantial portion of the time I end up with either business people or lawyers or both who don't understand the data center deal. So they read the documents and they ask the things that are wholly inappropriate and not market. Um, a, a favorite example of mine is if, if you're talking about a fully built out turnkey Data enterprise data center space that that the customer is renting, a real estate lawyer walks in and says, I want an alteration right, as usual. I want the right to put up sheetrock walls and to change where the air conditioning ducts are and take out the raised flooring or add more raised flooring or put in a door or whatever. That doesn't work in it fully built out turnkey data center space. It's gonna interfere with the airflow and the operation of the cooling and the ability to meet the SLAs regarding uptime and uh, temperature in the space and humidity in the space. But you deal with someone who doesn't understand the, the industry and asks for things that are unreasonable. And this extends throughout the lease or the MSA or the SLA when you deal with somebody who doesn't get it. Same thing if you're dealing with people who come out of the IT side or the software side, but don't understand data centers. I think that's the biggest problem I come across. Yeah, very similar to uh, the experiences that we have, and we end up having to educate and train the attorneys on the other side of the fence, which, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> is not always the easiest thing when everyone's fighting to be the smartest person in the room. Um, yes. I had one good example where I did a a data center lease uh, for one of my clients opposite a well-known hedge fund. And the in-house general counsel, who was a corporate lawyer, decided to handle it himself. And it took a lot longer because I had to educate him on things. At the end of the deal, um, we were getting along very well and got friendly. And two months later, I get a phone call from him saying, okay, we're doing our second data center deal. I'm not making the same mistake I made last time. Will you represent us on this deal? 
So that, in my view, is the best compliment I can get as a lawyer, the guy on the other side of the table hiring. Yeah, that is that is a good comment. So what what are so we've addressed the problem of just people not fully understanding what they're getting themselves into. But what are some of the specific issues or problems that you've uh, that you've come across that may be consistently coming across your plate? Where you know, if only people could understand these two or three simple concepts, or, or they may be complex concepts, but it would make things go a lot swimming a lot more swimmingly than than they are. So there. Part of the issue is that um, in the data center space, as with any other industry, there are um, customary ways of solving issues and what's reasonable and anticipated and what's not. So one area, for example, that this comes up with a lot is in dealing with damages and what happens if there's a breach of an SLA or of a lease provision regarding quality of build-out of a space, and how much damages can you collect, and what limitations are there. It's customary in the data center space to have a mutual waiver of consequential damages, um, although lately a lot of large cloud providers are trying to push back against landlords on that and have a one-way waiver that the landlord can't get consequential damages from the cloud provider, but the cloud provider can from a landlord. Um, my bottom line view of a lot of the damages issues is there really shouldn't be the scope of damages that a lot of people think they incur. Uh, there shouldn't be this losing millions and millions of dollars because you lost time doing uh, trades if you're in the brokerage uh, or high-speed trading business, because any well-operated data center for a company should have multiple simultaneously replicated databases with an automatic switchover if one fails or has quality issues to another. So you never really have the downtime and you shouldn't incur the huge damages. But I get companies that want huge damages from a landlord and I say to them, what do you wanna do? You wanna own the data center? Because that's what's going to happen if you get the scope of damages you're asking for. None of the data center companies are that they could support that level of damages uh, for a major transaction. So that's one area where I see a big problem of. Uh, Related to that, I found it interesting um, as I started working in the industry, learning that each individual property that is owned by a provider is set up as its own separate LLC. Um, specifically, not always, not, not always. always, but frequently they're in what's called an SPE, single purpose or special purpose entity, separate LLC or corporation. That's the real estate industry business model. REITs tend not to use that and tend to have their assets pooled in one entity, but not always. Um, but the reason historically in the real estate industry is if you have an issue at one property, you don't want that tainting other investments of yours, number one. And number two, the real estate industry before REITs existed, and still to a lesser degree today, have separate different investors for each property. So if 
I'm invested in property number one, and you're invested in property number two, and there's a problem at my property, you don't want to share in that liability and have your asset pooled with mine when you don't have an ownership interest in the asset that the liability is arising at. Uh, and that's an issue sometimes you have to deal with with data center customers, and they want some sort of a guarantee from a more creditworthy parent entity. On the other hand, most data centers have a tremendous amount of equity invested in them. Lenders won't give 90 or 100% financing on a data center unless maybe it's a fully least stabilized data center. But most data centers, there's still substantial equity uh, so that if there is an issue, you have a source of recovery. Gotcha. So, so the trend then has been for that to increasingly not be the case. So for example, um, a handful of providers that I've worked for in the past that had multiple data centers had individual companies set up, um, you know, company name dash region that it was in or city that it was in. Right. Um, with a number was the you know the name of the con on the contract that the customer had to sign, not just the parent company. Exactly. Uh, so that's that's been changing over time. And it, my the rationale that I was told for doing so was, as you said, to limit the liabilities should there be some sort of occurrence within that one property. Have companies found other creative ways to limit? that liability sure. from a location to lo location perspective with, with customers who are seeking those types of, you know, damages or. You look at, have to look at both sides of the issue. So I still think a majority of data centers are owned by separate single purpose entities for that specific property. Um, but even if they are not, you can deal with it through limitations on damages. This is an area that has flowed over from the IT and software contracting space that parties in those agreements customarily had a cap on damages claims and limiting each side. Sometimes it's drafted one side, but usually it ends up with good negotiation becoming a mutual cap of X dollars or X months or years of uh, contract expenditures, rent under the lease uh, or a license or service fees under an MSA or a license or co-location agreement. And uh, that's one way of dealing with it, making those liability damages caps mutual. Uh, but there are some issues that they shouldn't apply to, and there are other issues that are regularly the topic of conversation. So on the landlord owner operator side, yeah, it makes sense to have a cap on damages of three months, six months, nine months, fees or rent, but that shouldn't include arrears in rent. That doesn't fall in the cap. The cap is intended for damages claims, not to limit the landlord operator's ability to collect from the tenant customer if they just stop paying. You have a five-year or a 10-year deal. So one one of the key questions I have for you, though, is the whole concept of the re real estate investment trust and 
there's a lot of almost all major data center owner operators, especially the publicly traded ones, have converted to uh, and or structured themselves as REITs. Um, can you explain for those listening as to why why that is? Why is the REIT status so preferred for for data center owner operators? So it's all about sources of capital. A REIT can raise money more easily and less expensively than a non-REIT, basically for two reasons. Number one, they are typically a public REIT and they are sourcing public capital markets and they sell stock as opposed to debt and people get a return based on profits, but they're not paying interest on that money. The second part of it is if they do go out and get debt, they can get corporate entity level at the highest tier of the company above the uh, pyramid of all the separate entities and facilities they own and borrow money in the corporate markets at public or even a privately held REIT at much lower corporate debt interest rates than real estate mortgage financing property by property. So it's principally about cost of capital. So why why specifically is it though that that the company would be able to achieve I mean if it's the same company providing the same service, why would a REIT structure provide someone a lower interest rate than a non-REIT company? Well, if you're not borrowing money but you're getting it as equity capital by selling stock in the public markets in an IPO or a secondary offering, you don't pay any interest on that money. So you have to pay, a, you may pay a dividend, but it's coming out of profit and it's part of your overall profits. And you, for those funds, eliminate having any interest factor on them. Uh, and you're able to borrow at cheaper interest rates because you're doing public company large international corporate borrowings as opposed to a property by property borrowing that's tied to the specific value of that real estate and the customers at that real estate. Just the way the debt and equities markets work and the costs of funds in them. Gotcha. And what would be a reason why, you know, if, if someone who's listening to this comp- uh, to this podcast has one, two, or three different data centers, and they're considering potentially structuring themselves as a REIT, what are some of the considerations as to, or what maybe some of the cons as to why they would not want to do that? So the flip side of it is there are huge upfront costs in doing an IPO, going public or converting to a REIT, number one. Number two, there are significant reporting requirements. You've got to hang all your clean and dirty laundry in public in filing proxy statements, annual reports, doing audited financials, making the audited financials public. Everybody has access to your information and you have to spend a lot more time and effort preparing that information and answering questions for investors. You're subject to a whole different level of regulatory regime that applies to public markets. The SEC now regulates you. Uh, 
That's for a public company, though. But as you said, though, can't you be a private REIT and not be a public REIT? You can. And that's an intermediate either stage or way of handling it. You're subject to some of those requirements, but not all of them as a private REIT. The other disadvantage is that a REIT is required to distribute substantially all of its income every year. So it makes it much harder for a REIT to do development deals. Also, a REIT is subject to restrictions on having rental income as opposed to services income. So if you're a I describe the spectrum of data center owner operators at one extreme of being essentially a real estate company owning a specific type of real estate that is a data center with space and power, but they're really just renting space, providing cooling, and giving access to power. On the other extreme, you have analytics companies and high-managed services companies that are providing a high level of services. Those companies don't work as a REIT. They have to be split into two businesses or they can't be a REIT. The ones that are closer to the pure real estate company will work as a REIT, but a REIT can't provide a lot of services. They have to have their income from the rental of real estate, not the provision of service. So when a a REIT buys, so I'll give you a perfect case study. So when QTS, for example, bought Carpathia, um, and Carpathia had a substantial amount of money coming in and income coming in as services, managed services and whatnot, not necessarily rental income from uh, from the data centers that they own. In fact, they leased the majority of their data centers. How how does that fit? And is Carpathia sitting as like a wholly owned subsidiary of the REIT, or how how are they able to kind of? There are a number dunk? of different strategies to deal with that, but the the most common is you split the company into two parts. One part becomes the real estate company that either owns or leases a facility, and then either leases out space or subleases it if it's a leased property uh, and gets rent good rental income and that becomes the REIT and the managed services part is spun out into a separate business that is not generally part of the REIT that provides the services. So it is possible then for a REIT to have a wholly owned subsidiary that is receiving income that's prim- you know majority or not uh, falls outside of the threshold of the stipulations. Of no, the it, it can't have it as a wholly owned subsidiary. It can have some limited bad income, but what you typically do is break it out into a separate company and the pre-REIT shareholders end up owning interests in two businesses now. One is the REIT company that has the real estate side, and then there's the separate company that provides the services, and they own an interest in that separate company, not through the REIT. Gotcha. Okay, that's definitely a uh, one of the questions that I had, and I've I've been in and around the space and even tried to train on this topic, and it's always confusing to me <laughs> as to how the hell how the hell some of these companies are able to do what they're doing. Um, the REIT area is 
primarily or almost entirely tax driven. The tax lawyers tell you what you can and cannot do to comply with the IRS code related to REITs and REIT income. Gotcha. So another one of the the interesting topics that is um, that I think the industry could use some clarity on is data privacy laws, especially as it relates to some of the international um, disputes currently occurring and and in debate. And I'm curious if you've dug down that rabbit hole and um, what you've uncovered. So I'm not a data privacy, data security lawyer, but yes, I deal with these issues every day and we have specialists in my firm who I work with on them. I get these things coming up all the time. Um, Tenants, companies that I'm representing as a tenant or I'm opposite them will say, I need these provisions in my data center lease or MSA to address data privacy concerns or HIPAA concerns or international uh, data sovereignty issues. There's a tremendous lack of knowledge in the space. It's all evolving very quickly. Some lawyers really understand it and know how to deal with it. A lot are guessing at it and aren't uh, very knowledgeable. So it pays to have a good expert in the area. So for example, um, HIPAA controls a lot of the data privacy rules in the United States. They started originally under HIPAA and under the amendment of HIPAA known as HITECH. And those are the original and the bulk of the current rules in the U.S. guard governing, keeping uh, personally identifiable information such as your date of birth, your social security number, um, your driver's license number, those kinds of things, confidential. And while HIPAA was originally designed for the health insurance industry, it really applies to everyone. Um, And if you go back to that spectrum I described before of the more real estate type data center companies that are just renting space and power and providing maybe rack and stack low-level services versus the other end of the spectrum of managed, high managed services and data analytics companies. If you're on the data analytics or high managed services company level and you have the passwords to a company's security systems and entree to the data on the server, you are appropriately liable on the HIPAA and other data privacy and data security laws. If on the other hand, you're a data center company that is just renting space and power, digital realty, for example, you don't want and you don't have those passwords. You're not in the data. You're not controlling the security of the customer's social security number or bank account information that's on those servers that are housed in your space. You're just renting the customer the space and providing the power to house the servers. You shouldn't be liable for a breach of data security. On the other hand, a lot of unsophisticated people essentially want to have everybody in the world as a target to share the wealth if there's a data privacy breach and a lawsuit over who caused the breach. And 
if you start to go down that road and say, I as a data center operator will comply with HIPAA and with other data privacy and data security regulations, while it sounds reasonable, you're painting a bullseye on yourself to take on liability in a litigation over a data breach because they're not going to say you breached your obligations. Whereas I say, yes, I'll comply with my obligations. However, everyone agrees. I don't want the passwords. Don't give them to me. I will not have access to the data. And therefore, if there's a data breach, unless you can show I physically caused it, I shouldn't have access. And the only way I could physically cause it is by someone walking into the data center picking up the server and walking out with it because I don't have the passwords and you should have it encrypted to protect it even if someone walked out with it. So don't drag me along and paint that bullseye on me. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah and there's, it's almost, I'd liken it back to when um, SAS 70 was a thing, right? And companies would claim to be SAS 70 certified even though there was no... There was no SAS 70 certification that was being provided. Um, There's a lot of companies, data center providers who just provide that power and space who say that they're HIPAA compliant or uh, PCI compliant when there are very minor aspects that a data center owner operator must provide from a security perspective. Um, But the onus is on those who have access to the systems themselves and, and the data on the servers themselves. Um, exactly, and that's actually related to part of the reason why I I am now involved with. Uh, have you heard of InfraGuard? No. So I'm I'm going to do a quick plug here. Um, so InfraGuard is a public-private partnership between the FBI and the private sector, and there's a number of silos and working groups, um, and there's regional chapters all over the country, um, and there's a number of silos based on different mission critical um, industries. So like nuclear, water, telecommunications, data centers. Um, there's, there's a number of different, over a dozen different you know, practice groups. And the whole purpose is to provide information sharing between the two uh, updates on, on what's going on back and forth. Obviously these days, cybersecurity is kind of trumping and, and spans across all of them. Um, but the whole reason why I got involved is I was at a internet infrastructure coalition, um, fly in, in DC when we were doing lobbying on behalf of the industry with staffers and senators and congressmen and women in, in DC. And we met actually with the FBI when we were there and there was a crew of like 30 of us sitting down with three representatives from the FBI And one of the topics that came up was around basic education for FBI um, agents so that they understood the process that needed to be followed by data center owner operators and hosting providers when requests for data and information from suspects um, was presented. So when a warrant is presented to a data center company to, to gain access to uh, data that's on a server inside the facility that FBI agent needs to understand if the data center provider even has the ability to get into that server, right? And it was right. somewhat shocking to me how certain you know certain aspects of, of or p- parts of the FBI were unaware of that process. And so I raised my hand and said, "Look, you know, I provide education in the industry. 
is there a way for me to help? Like, I'd love to be able to train the agents out in the field as to how this world operates such that they can understand the process they're going to be getting themselves into um, when they go to serve those subpoenas or those warrants or, or whatever. Don't bother wasting your time serving that subpoena on the most data center operators. Look for the hosting company that may have access to it or the managed services provider, but more likely the operator of the network for the company. Right. And, and beyond that, it's understanding even then the systems that are in place within those managed service providers. Because if you present the warrant and say, hey, you have 24 hours to give us access to this data, the only, you know, there's very few people who understand and even have access to that data within that company. And they're probably fighting fires all day, every day. And you're asking them to come off the line from something that's revenue generating to right. do something that's non-revenue generating when they're probably strapped 150% of the time as it is. Um, and they're so- probably imputing from um, telcos and giving a subpoena to a telephone company to give me the call log for a phone number, which they do have access to. And now the carriers are set up to provide that information or give me the GPS location of the particular cell phone, uh, those sorts of things. But uh, they don't understand that a data center operator most of the time doesn't have access of then physical access to the servers, doesn't have access to the data on the servers. Right. Yeah, so it's you know, so I joined the East Carolina chapter now of InfraGuard and we meet every other month and it's actually been a great experience meeting meeting the men and women who are in the organization, both on the private side and the public side, and just the, the information gained and garnered has been fabulous. And I know each chapter is a little bit different, but for those who are listening, I would encourage you to look into InfraGuard. It's I-N-F-R-A-G-A-R-D and see how and if if you can get involved because um you know, it, as I've come to understand things, we are losing the war on cyber terror right now. And there are billions of dollars of corporate espionage being lost every day or every year uh, here in America from outside influences, both na- nation, state and private, who are just pulling and sucking data and information and IP out of America right now. Um, and the only way we're going to combat this is if we start proactively working together and, and, and working uh, and getting involved at the end of the day. So anyway, that's, that's a short plug, but it's re- relevant to the topic at hand. Sounds really interesting. Yeah. So the other piece of your question that we didn't get to is um, Brexit, EU, and data sovereignty issues, which are evolving. Um, in the long run, I personally believe that what's going on with the EU data privacy will turn into much ado about nothing. Um, So the EU, a couple of years ago, struck down the framework that allowed data to be shared, data of EU residents to be shared uh, outside the EU. Uh, A lot of their original concern was over the supercomputers that the NSA supposedly has, and Uh, many people believe have cracked 128-bit encryption and are working on or might be further along on 256 and 512-bit encryption and that 
the NSA has access to the data on the servers of many U.S. companies and being, even encrypted data being transmitted over, uh, over telecom lines, fiber and such. So the EU wanted to impose a better standard and they struck down the old standard. A new standard has been, uh, the rules are, preliminary rules are adopted and it's in the process of being implemented. Uh, I think in the long run, it will get worked out. Companies will agree to new standards of how they have to secure data and not share it uh, and make it a little harder maybe for the NSA to access that data. So I think in the long run, that will turn out not to be a huge issue. Brexit and the uh, UK exiting the EU may create more silos within the EU versus the UK and Ireland as separate silos for data center facilities. Uh, I'm less certain how that will evolve, but, but like, uh, like the EU stuff, I think that if we look back five years from now, we'll all say it's sort of like Y2K. Everybody made a huge big deal out of it. And we all adjusted and recalibrated and learned how to deal with it. In the long run, it's much ado about nothing. Data sovereignty is a little different issue. So there are a number of countries that have gotten proprietary about their data and say the data of our citizens can only be hosted in our country. And therefore, you have to have a data center in that country. And it's good for their local business because it's forcing new data centers there, but it's inhibiting the ability of companies that cross many national lines to operate their business the way they used to. And uh, banks that had their data posted in continental-based or regional within a continent-based locations now have to create a new tier for the countries that have data sovereignty restrictions and just have that country's residents data hosted within that country. So it's a complication, and all of these are going to be a cost to, to large businesses and eventually small and medium-sized businesses throughout the world. Uh, but I don't think it's they are going to change the landscape dramatically going forward. They're a bump in the road. We'll recalibrate. We'll learn how to deal with it as life goes on. Yeah. For, for you know, cloud service providers specifically are, are watching that very closely because if they then need to build data center presences out in individual countries across Europe, um, that's obviously an increase in expense and that's going to have to be passed off in some way, shape or form to the client. I've heard right. conflicting stories though. Some have told me that um, it's actually, you know, a, a law that data has to stay for in Germany, for example, you know, that legally data has of yes. any German citizen has to be within Germany. But I also heard from someone who's in the industry, you said it's actually a mis uh, misrepresentation it's actually not a law. It's a, um, you know, a request. A, it, it's not something that can be enforceable and someone can be fined for not having the data um, within the nation. Are you familiar with wh where that stands? My general understanding is that it is a legal requirement. That Germany is one of those countries that has data sovereignty regulations. Uh, I haven't 
dug into it that carefully. I have yet to have a deal where it came up regarding whether the data could be maintained outside Germany or not. But my general perception and understanding is that I believe it is a law. So going back to, well, is, is there anything else that you, you think would be so interesting to share? Thought, yeah. One other thought, uh, extrapolating off our conversation on data security and data privacy, uh, is how does this all get affected by cloud operators? And I believe that there is substantial value and future growth for the cloud providers, including the couple of large hyperscale providers, but I also have serious concerns about it. I think that a lot of their growth in the last few years has been just touching the edges of available data to be hosted and shifting it into the cloud. But what I think they're getting in large part is combination of small and medium-sized businesses and lower quality level data from larger businesses. And I'm skeptical that highly confidential data, data that's subject to HIPAA and other data privacy regulations, banks account record data are going to get shifted to the public cloud. Private cloud maybe, and discussion about hybrid cloud is good, but I'm very skeptical about that kind of data going to the public cloud because large companies like to know where their data is and have a lot of control over it. And when you're in the public cloud, particularly with the large hyperscale providers, you have zero control over your data. They don't tell you where it's going to be, what facility it'll be in, even what country it'll be in, or will it be split up among 30 different facilities. And while they will give SLAs guaranteeing a certain level of service, I don't think those SLAs come even close to what the data center industry provides. And we've all read about outages at major hyperscale providers, some of which have have pyramided into outages at um, internet providers, telcos, et cetera. So while I think there's still huge growth opportunities in that sector, I don't think it's a category killer, and I don't think cloud operators are going to put hosting companies and data center operators out of business. It's another layered offering that's out there. Yeah, and the the way it, it there's been a, a huge growth in what's considered, you know, if you break it down, we try not to use the word cloud because what the hell is cloud, right? It's it has a million different different definitions. The new title for outsource operations of data center. Right. Instead of the company having it in the closet in their corporate office, it's out there somewhere, you don't know where, and you're paying another company to operate. Right. It's hosting at a different level, in my view. So the the growth over the last couple of years that we've seen is in private, managed, dedicated services. So companies who say, "Hey, we don't have the staff to be experts on HIPAA. Uh, we don't want to build up the staff to maintain and manage the security and the systems." 
um, related to you know PCI or HIPAA or any of the other somewhat complex uh, systems and networks that need to be built for those types of um, uh, silos of data or storage centers for for that data. Um, and so there are companies that are emerging who will build out a private environment, meaning it's not shared. The data on that server or system is not shared with other companies. It's all built out just for that client. Uh, so it's almost like a managed infrastructure as a service. It's not almost like it is a managed infrastructure as a service uh, that's being provided. Um, so the cloud companies like your Azure's and your um, AWS's of the world do not offer that. And so they, it's kind of, you know, it's no different than what IBM has been doing for decades at this point, right? They'll walk into a company and say, Hey, you're spending 50 million a years, a year right now on your IT. We'll do it for 30, right? Just give us access and control to everything and we'll recreate it for you. And we're specialists in this and we can do it for you. So there's just a lot of smaller and now medium and growing to large private managed dedicated uh, service providers in the marketplace who deploy all those services in data centers (laughs) that are owned by the different REITs in the marketplace. Um, So I I tend to agree with you that there's no, is even as fast as cloud service, you know, the AWS, let's be specific, the AWS and um, Azure space is growing today. I do not think that they will eventually consume 100% or even close to the majority of all, all data um, that is required. I agree. I, I think there's an advantage. It's another layer, another offering. I think those banks we were talking about before can layer their offerings and take their low-level data, their marketing brochures, for and put that in a public and take the intermediate level data and put it in a lower level of redundancy data center operation, be it operated by them or outsourced operation in a private cloud or hosting situation. Uh, And that the most sensitive data, the companies will require more control over. And an IBM, as you described, can provide that control. You know where your data is, depending on the nature of your deal with that company. Uh, You can know and control it and see the servers as opposed to having it up in uh, AWS where you have no clue where it is. So I think a layered offering is the wave of the future, which means there's an opportunity for success for many, many different business models and companies along that spectrum offering different types of services. And I laugh when I've had a few times where people say, well, data centers can go out of business because of the cloud. And I respond to them and say, where is the cloud? Cloud is just outsourced operation of a data center, but it's in a data center. You get a wholly owned data center, operated by AWS or or uh, uh, Microsoft, Azure, or somebody else, or uh, in a shared facility where they lease a portion of the space. And I'm seeing more and more of those lease deals within multi-tenant data centers being done by those large cloud providers for a couple of reasons. I think the cloud providers want speed to market and building your own data center takes much longer than leasing space 
in an existing data center that you control and operate. The data center operators don't generally get the full rental rate from those companies because they leverage the operators because of the size of their business, particularly if they're doing multiple deals with the same operator across multiple facilities or one or two large deals in one or two facilities. And they get cheap rent, cheap pricing from the data center operator. But it's no different than in the real estate space when you're building a regional shopping mall, you need your anchor tenants. You need your Nordstrom's or Macy's or Bloomingdale's to attract the other tenants. And as soon as you have an, a, an AWS or a Microsoft Azure or some of the large provider in a data center, it gives that data center instant credibility, number one, for future customers. In the regional shopping mall, the operator makes most of their profit, almost all of it, from the individual inline stores and little or no profit from the department. But the department stores are the loss leader attraction. And doing a deal with a Microsoft or AWS is also the attraction to a data center because companies get comfortable that if they are in the data center, they did the due diligence and homework and know it operates well and it's a good provider and they'll do the right thing, number one. And number two, those companies want the close in on-ramp to put portions of their data into the public cloud and having AWS or Azure in the facility gives you instant access to that public cloud. So there are a lot of advantages, but a provider has to know what they're doing and realize that they won't get top of the market pricing, they'll get bottom of the market pricing, but other advantages in return. I think that actually hits on one of the um, key misconceptions that people have in the industry is that the likes of your Facebook's, Google's, um, and as we've been saying, AWS and Microsoft's and Oracle's and, and IBM software that they own and control their own data centers. Uh, and the reality is they they own and control uh, large leases with big real estate investment trusts that are responsible for maintaining and managing and building out and constructing these facilities. And it's not the case for all of uh, the infrastructure, but it's, you know, in, in. Those companies all highly publicize the sexy deal of. Facebook or LinkedIn or AWS or whoever building their own facility. But you're absolutely right. If you if you analyze it carefully, my guess is a majority of all of those companies uh, facilities uh, by either power consumption or number of servers or square footage are in lease space that someone else owns the building and they lease a portion of it in a multi-tenant shared data center or lease a whole building in a property someone else has where they have multiple data centers. And for us, it's not a guess. We, we, we do do that type of analysis and, and kind of know what those percentages look like. And we find, as your point, it's mostly PR. It's not mostly PR why they do it, but they do leverage them building their own data center uh, primarily for large PR stints that they push out. Uh, into the marketplace so that they remain top of mind and as thought leaders and uh, technology, you know, from a technology perspective. But um, so Jeffrey, I have a few other questions I want to throw at you before, before we 
call it a day, even though I'm sure we could probably sit here and talk for hours and hours um, about the industry and the experiences that you've had in the industry. Um, but what, what do you remember the first time you ever walked into a data center? It was shortly after I did the American Express deal in around 1990. It was somewhere probably in the early or mid-90s. And it was a very different facility than what you see today. And uh, it was, I can't remember what company operated it, but it was a portion of a single-story um, mixed-use type space where they had isolated a section of it and put in raised flooring. It wasn't a closet in a corporate headquarters, um, but it wasn't a fully isolated data center facility. Do you remember that experience and looking around and, you know, what, what were your thoughts as you were checking it out? Uh, I was in awe in those days because I didn't know yet what I was looking at that well. I, today, if I went back and looked at it, it would probably scream out to me that it was an antique. But the world and the technology has evolved so much in the last 20 years, uh, you still see some of those old uh, 1990s and 2000 era and even some older data centers around and still in use as corporate facilities and companies have taken old facilities and regularly upgraded them. Uh, to improve the uh, redundancy and, and add additional power and cooling capacity. Uh, but today's brand new data centers look a whole lot sexier than those did. So that's actually related to the next question I have for you. What What is the most impressive, you know, quote unquote, sexiest data center that you've you've been through in the last couple of years? Uh, I've seen a lot of interesting facilities. I find that there are a number that are designed to look sexy, putting in blue lighting in the hallways and having cabinets face through um, wire mesh grid as opposed to sheetrock walls onto the hallways and sparkling flooring so it just looks sexy. That's all irrelevant to the operation of the data center. The data center doesn't have to look sexy to be a very well-operated, highly redundant facility. I think the sexiness is irrelevant. It's just glitz for marketing purposes. So to, to your point, I was in Ashburn, Virginia, not too long ago with a client walking through properties and we had I'll, I'll keep the providers' names nameless. Protect <laughs> um, the guilty. Yeah, protect the guilty. But we went through one facility, and you know, the client was very impressed. And he walked out, and he's like, "Wow, that place looked like a spaceship." Um, and we went to another provider who, literally, it was a brick building. It was not sexy at all um, from a aesthetics perspective, um, but it had everything that you could possibly need from a 2N plus one perspective, from a cooling perspective, very efficient data center. And the, uh, the gentleman who was the general manager for the property who was touring us through asked where we had been through. And we told them and they said, well, what was your experience? And I said, yeah, you know, they clearly designed this thing to look like a spaceship. And he said, yeah, we clearly designed this place to look like a brick shit house that just works. 
right? Exactly. <laughs> and I That's was like, my point. yeah. And I, I loved that comment because it's so true. You know, the, the aesthetics are one thing and, you know, I definitely look for certain things when I'm going through the mechanical rooms and the cooling rooms, you know, clean floors and um, making sure that things are, are neat and tight because it's no different than like, on your way to the bathroom, checking out the kitchen and seeing what the kitchen looks like for a restaurant, because it will give you a very telltale sign of how they run the restaurant. Um, there are certain things like that that do matter, but from an aesthetics, whether it looks like a data, a spaceship or not is entirely yeah. irrelevant. Right. And it, it doesn't matter to the quality of the pizza or the sushi you're eating, whether the pizza guy twists it and throws it up in the air or not, and whether the sushi guy bangs his knives and, and you know, puts on a show, irrelevant to the real operational issues. Right. So another question I have for you is, what is the most fascinating thing that you have learned in your you know profession over the last three months? You know, has there been any kind of new information that you've come across that has made you stop and really say, holy crap, or this is really awesome. Now you're asking a tough question because I find I'm learning new things every day and I get bored if I'm not learning. Right, something let's say, let's say the day. last three days. What was that about the last three days? I'm a very people oriented person and, and I like meeting and getting to know new people and that's always very exciting to me that's why i like going to a lot of these conferences because you meet a lot of interesting people and that's how i met you and how we got here today in terms of of uh factual knowledge things i've been learning recently i'm trying to learn more about the data privacy, data security space. I know a fair amount about it and deal with the issues at a, at a fairly decent level, but the law is evolving so quickly in that space. So I took one seminar on it this week and I'm taking another one in another couple of weeks just to try and increase my knowledge and, and be able to understand it better and protect my clients better in transactional documents. Gotcha. So what is it? I'll tell you one other interesting experience I had recently. So I mentioned earlier my brother. So my brother got one of the first PhDs in computer sciences when they, back in the 1960s and and, uh, 70s, most of the people in the computer space who had advanced degrees had them in physics, not in computers because they didn't exist. They first rolled out a PhD level offering in computers in something like 1980 or 81 or something. And my brother and his wife each got, they met in the PhD program at Columbia. So my brother sold his uh, computer software and systems installation company a few years ago and changed careers a little and became a software industry analyst uh, for Alliance Bernstein and Stanford Bernstein com- group companies. And so he and I have been talking because he covers uh, a lot of the companies that are uh, in the cloud space, such as Microsoft uh, and a lot of managed services type 
providers and hosting companies and others. And uh, so he and I, uh, he invited me to dinner with about 15 industry people who are from large companies that buy stocks in the technology space. And so we had a really fascinating discussion where he's coming at it from his dual background of being in the software and computer systems industries and now being an analyst of those industries. And my talking about it from my perspective on the legal side and working representing companies in the data center industry, just a very unexpected, fascinating dialogue back and forth between the two of us. And this was sort of the first time in my life that my path really directly crossed with what my brother does, and it's a lot of fun. So what what was one of the pieces, you know, key takeaways that you had from that conversation? So we were looking at a number of the companies, Microsoft being one in particular, and talking about he's analyzed the company and looked at the future of their business and how profitable it is and will be. And he's um, been pushing higher stock targets for Microsoft for the last few years, and their stock price has been meeting and exceeding those targets. And uh, he's followed a lot of what they're trying to do in the, the cloud and data center spaces, but not from the perspective of are they building facilities or are they leasing? And he was asking me questions and we were having a dialogue very similar to the one you and I were having about building or leasing space and uh, what's the future of the cloud and where does it go? It was a fun discussion and uh, he's very bullish on Microsoft. Gotcha. Um, so one of the last questions I have for you, Jeffrey, has to do with what you would wish you would have known when you first started getting into the business. So if you look back to that first client that you had, uh, American Express, and the first deals that you were doing, you know, what is one key piece of information that you wish you would have had? And that, you know, pretend you're talking to, you know, a nephew or, uh, you know, a family member, even a friend who you see coming into this space, you know, what is a, a piece of advice that you would give them? So I wish I had a lot more basic technical understanding, both on the computer and data center industry side, as well as sort of financial analysis and being able to evaluate economics of transactions. I know the basics of both, but I think I would be a better lawyer and I encourage people. I, I love sort of what my brother did of having sort of dual backgrounds. I think having multiple levels of expertise, and I think I have that to some degree in both being a real estate guy and a data center and telecom real estate guy is kind of a unique uh, juxtaposition of two different specialties. But the, most, the more you can layer and add on additional expertise in related fields, such as finance and, uh, and the tech side of it, I think that's what adds value. A compliment I get 
fairly often from my clients is I'm not an engineer, but I can sit down with a data center engineer and have a reasonably sophisticated conversation with them and understand what they want and then write it in the document. So if I had a better technical understanding, I think I'd be even better at doing that. So I encourage anybody thinking about any business or practice or space to have multiple expertise. I thought about when I was in law school getting a dual degree and either a law degree and a business degree or a law degree and an architecture degree uh, or something like that. I think when you're younger and you have a little more flexibility and you don't have a family, uh, I think dual degrees and building multiple levels of related expertise are invaluable. Yeah, I, I can't um, stress that enough with the people that I talk to as well. And it's funny because what I stress people to learn is the legal side of it <laughs> and, and the contracts. Um, and not that you need to be an expert on it. And that's why people like you exist, but just understand the basic framework, especially on the sales side, the sales folks who flip over the fence, the same flipping questions to their general counsel every single time, or just don't even know how to have that conversation with a client, I think are um, they're limited in their capacity to truly add value in the conversation with their customers. So just understanding what the basic T's and C's are and the major points where a company can or can't give um, will help a, a conversation go much smoother and reduce the friction both internally and with the customer when it comes time to actually get a contract done. Right. And what goes hand in hand with that, and I'm a big proponent of it, is continuing education in all different types of uh, businesses and uh, I love lecturing and uh, I do less writing than I used to, but I still do a fair amount of writing. I actually wrote the first legal treatise on telecom real estate law um, together with the head real estate telecom lawyer at Verizon uh, about 20 years ago, and we just did a, the fourth or fifth revision of it. But I love giving lecturing and doing things and, and the kind of continuing education you do for companies. And I do a lot of it going out and speaking um, in conferences and within corporate settings and at brokerage firms and such to educate people uh, and people taking different types of courses to grow their expertise, no different than what I described before, which was in my early days in the data center space and in the telecom space, taking some courses to understand the technology. Broaden your base anywhere and everywhere you can with related, interesting kinds of things. Everybody should be doing it. Yeah. Amen. So one last question for you, Jeffrey. Do you love data centers? I absolutely love both data centers and the data center industry, as well as the people in the industry. It's been a lot of fun working in the space for the last 27 years, and I look forward to continuing to do it for many, many more years. Beautiful, my friend. Well, I'm definitely going to be reaching out to you here soon because we have the uh, the next edition of our data center co-location playbook uh, that's going to be coming out in Q1 of next year. And I'm definitely going to want your eyes to do some reviewing of uh, the, the section around contracts. So um, hopefully I talk to you before I reach out to you for that. But it was it was a pleasure talking and to you. And thank you, from I you. think, 
a couple of PowerPoints um, on stuff I do from lectures I've done that you're welcome to look at and if I can help edit any of the stuff you're doing, feel free. Right on. And I guess one last piece is how can people find you if they want to connect with you? So just Google my name. You'll get me as long as you spell it right. Uh, but I'm a partner in the New York office of Mince Levin and uh, people can email me with questions uh, and as quickly as I have the time to respond, I'm glad to be a resource and ask, answer questions to anybody. My email is J-A-M-O-E-R-D-L-E-R, J-A-M-O-E-R-D-L-E-R at Mince, M-I-N-C-Z as in zebra, dot com. And phone number is 212-692-6700. Hope, uh, I hope you're able to handle the amount of emails and, and phone calls that might be coming at you after this. But uh, and for those who want to know how to spell Jeffrey's name, it's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. Uh, and then as he just said, his last name, M-O-E-R-D-L-E-R. So you can find him on LinkedIn. And Jeffrey, again, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been uh, informative and fun for me, and I hope it was for you. Great. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And uh, I appreciate the effort you're putting in to continuing to educate the industry and uh, encourage people to Keep on listening, ask questions, learn, and uh, and listen to Sean's podcast. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Okay, great. Thanks. Have a great day. Peace. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services Space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. Mm-hmm.